Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Elizabeth Sawin to the show. Elizabeth Sawin is co-founder and co-director of Climate Interactive and an expert on solutions that address climate change while also improving health, well-being, equity, and economic vitality. And she is the originator of the term multi-solving to describe such win-win solutions. Beth writes and speaks about multi-solving, climate change, and leadership based on system thinking to local, national, and international audiences. Her work has been published in Nonprofit Quarterly, the Sanford Social Innovation Review, U.S. News, the Daily Climate, Systems Dynamic Review, and more. She has trained and mentored global sustainability leaders in the Donella Meadows Fellows Program and provided systems thinking training to both Ashoka and Dalai Lama Fellows. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Raj. I'm excited for our conversation. Me too. Elizabeth, where are you currently located? Um, I live and work out of a small town in Vermont, Heartland, Vermont. And how's the weather up there? Mm, Today it's a bit rainy, but we have been in high summer, and I spent yesterday out on a lake in a canoe, full disclosure, so the best of New England summer. I had a little taste of it. That sounds lovely. Were you just out doing it for fun? Um, Yeah, we we met up with friends of ours, and uh, our kids grew up together, so we had a bunch of the kids, a bunch of canoes, and uh, time with friends, and... um, time in the water. It was really special. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. So Elizabeth, I'd like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Well, maybe we can build on this theme of, of New England and my small town, Heartland, Vermont, um, because I, I live in an interesting place, which is called Cobb Hill, um, sometimes we call it an eco-village. Sometimes we call it co-housing. Um, it's essentially 21 families who co-own about 280 acres of organic farm and forest. Um, we live in um, homes that were built to be as sustainable and energy efficient and green as they could be. Um, that was in the late 90s when um, I was a young mother of, of two babies and um, those kids grew up here. Uh, so it's it's you know, because my work is in climate and the transition to a sustainable future, one element of my life that's been a really interesting backdrop to that big picture is just the very um, day-to-day picture of of um, l- learning how to lower one's own footprint and what what's involved in that, what's possible, what some of the lessons are. It sounds beautiful. You painted a lovely picture. I would love to see photographs when you get some time. Please feel free to share them with me, and I'm happy to post them when we post the uh, episode. 
Yeah, for sure. We also have a little website. Um, it's Cobb, cobhill.org. Um, and there's photos and that sort of thing there. Then I will put a link to that in the show notes. Cool. So, Elizabeth, can you give me a overview of Climate Interactive? Yeah, Climate Interactive is the organization that I co-direct and I'm a co-founder of. The other co-founder, co-director is Andrew Jones. Um, Together, we're about a dozen people. Um, We're a virtual organization, so we're spread. Actually, um, we have uh, colleagues all around the world, um, but also spread across the U.S., We think of our mission as helping people see what works to address climate change and the other linked challenges like food and water and equity and health. Um, And the way that we do that, uh, our common methodology is system dynamics computer simulation. Um, So we use a particular method of building computer simulations that let people ask what if questions about the future. Um, What if uh, China, India, and the European Union all cut their emissions in half by 2030. What might that mean for the global temperature at the end of the century? What might it mean for sea level rise or o- ocean acidification? Um, uh, we also let people ask questions about different technological options. What if there was a new energy technology that was zero carbon and half the price of coal introduced in 2025? Um, or what if we stopped deforestation around the world? Uh, the, the reason that we focus so much on um, these what-if questions is, um, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, climate change is the kind of problem where you can't wait to see how bad it is before you decide to act. You need to act well in advance of the strongest impacts. Um, And so we need tools to sharpen our intuition about what are the most effective actions to basically um, experiment in our thought process and in our conversations with each other so that we can then go act in the world. Well, it sounds like a magic eight ball, but with better answers. Well, we don't think about it that way. Actually, it's interesting you said that. Um, There's nothing magic about it. Um, And honestly, there's not answers in the sense of a prediction. Um, Instead, what we think about it is as a tool for building people's intuition. Um, We we are not climate researchers ourselves. So what we do is we draw upon um, the peer-reviewed literature and uh, we put the you know the best available estimates as rigorously as possible. We update them when the science changes, but we also make all those assumptions very transparent, um, and we make them. This is an important um, uh, thing about the way that we work: is that we make those assumptions accessible to the user. Um, so uh, there may be a key parameter that there may be some uncertainty around. We pick the middle of the range, but we say to people you know, see how much this matters. What if the upper end estimate is really the right, you know, the right answer? Um, What does that change about the long-term prospects for the climate or the effectiveness of a certain action? What if it's the lower end of the range? Um, And what that does is it starts to help people understand what are the uncertainties that really make a difference in results? And what are the ones that maybe we shouldn't spend our time arguing about because um, the way the system behaves is not so sensitive to that? I love the idea of tools for building people's intuition. And I know on your website, you have some other tools too. Can you speak to them briefly? Yeah. So maybe I'll just go through the, um, 
you know, the kind of litany of, of tools that we have. Um, the, the one that is uh, in use the most right now is called En-ROADS. Um, and it's a model or a simulation of the global climate, um, but it includes all of the um, energy using stuff in the entire global economy. So it represents the power plants, the cars, the um, the buildings and the the buses and airplanes, right? So, so all of that energy using stuff, it also represents the land that's used for agriculture, um, the forests and the oceans. And um, in En-ROADS, the what if questions that people are asking are about policies and investments that change either how that land is used or um, which parts of the economy um, are invested in, which ones are contracting. And then it plays out the implications of all those choices for the global climate. Um, uh, the, the, um, I guess you would say the progenitor model to En-ROADS is a model called C-ROADS. Um, and it, it asks very similar questions. It has some of the same core structure, but the what if questions are a little bit different because they're focused on what countries might do. Um, and so this is modeled on the discussions that happen within the United Nations about the pledges that each country um, is making in terms of their reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if, if you think about things like the Paris Agreement, where each country put forth how much they would cut their emissions by what year, um, C-ROADS is designed to let you uh, test different scenarios for what countries might do. Um, we have built other models over the years. Um, one is called ALPS, which is focused on um, agriculture at the national level um, for countries in Africa and how agriculture and climate interrelate. Um, we've also built city level models um, of things like stormwater infrastructure and how stormwater and rainstorms are influenced by climate change and how the choices a city might make about their land use, their permeable surfaces affect things like flooding. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of tools that are full-blown computer simulations. Um, we also have tools that are um, uh, simpler to use that don't require a computer. One of them is a tool called Flower, which is an exercise with a piece of paper and a set of colored pencils for a group to talk about what we call multi-solving, which is um, investments that solve more than one problem at the same time. So a great example of that is something like a better cycling infrastructure, which reduces greenhouse gas emissions from transportation. So it helps with climate change, but it also gives people a safe way to have physical activity, which improves all sorts of health indicators. Um, people who, are, who have access to um, you know, that ability to exercise tend to show less um, chronic disease, which is obviously a huge benefit for individuals, but also for um, health systems overall. So FLOWER is a tool for um, thinking about multi-solving. I like that term a lot, multi-solving. Who came up with that? Um, multi-solving is a word that I came up with. Um, and it actually came a little bit out of a frustration. Um, you know, certainly this idea that there's there are actions that have multiple benefits is not... Um, you know, it's not a new idea. That's not an idea I came up with. Um, often people talk about it in terms of co-benefits. You might have heard that phrasing. And for um, a number of years at Climate Interactive, we also talked in terms of co-benefits. But we started to notice something, which was, um, in the, at least in the context of climate change, 
typically when people talk about co-benefits, they have a uh, sort of in quotation marks, a main benefit in mind, which is protecting the climate. So reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then it's almost as though there are these nice co-benefits that sort of come along. So there's a primary benefit and a co-benefit. Um, to make that more concrete, picture something like uh, closing down a coal-fired power plant um, that is close to a neighborhood. So the main benefit in that way of thinking would be less greenhouse gas emissions from coal, so less CO2 from burning coal. That's the main benefit. It will protect the climate. And then a co-benefit might be better air quality in that neighborhood. But if you start talking to people who um, might live near that neighborhood, uh, you might hear stories like how many times in the past year a family spent the night in the emergency room with their kindergartner who suffers from asthma. Um, and so when you close down a coal-fired power plant, air quality will improve and respiratory diseases like asthma will improve. And so for, for that parent or that child, um, you know, that's a that might be the main benefit. My kid's breathing easier. I'm so relieved, right? Um, and the hundred-year future for the climate, you know, that's great too. So, so main versus co-benefit really is a matter of your perspective. And what we realize, and what we say in the idea of multi-solving, is we don't have to choose. Instead, we should just celebrate and work as hard as we can towards these actions that have a whole um, array of benefits. And it doesn't really matter what's the main benefit and what's a nice co-benefit. We're, we're just going to find ways to work together um, to have all of those benefits happen. Thank you for that. Now, can you speak to your most recent initiative around COVID? Yeah. Um, you know, like many people around the world, um, uh, obviously, we're trying to understand the intersections of the work that we do on climate change. Um, with the pandemic. And um, one thing that we began to, to see happening and we thought was worth tracking to share with um, our users and our community is the way that uh, governments around the world, so uh, sometimes cities and towns, states and provinces and nations, um, are finding ways to um, address the pandemic, to help people through the pandemic, um, and at the same time, make progress on climate change and make progress on the, um, the either economic or racial or gender equity of their communities. And so that's a, a classic example of, of what we were just talking about, of multi-solving. Um, and it, the thinking goes, if we're going to put billions or in some case trillions um, into, say, economic stimulus programs to help our economy and our communities through the pandemic, uh, we really ought to make sure that those trillions um, make progress on other issues at the same time. Uh, so, so the types of examples that we're seeing um, are things like uh, investments in clean energy. Um, so for instance, Italy is one country where part of their um, uh, economic stimulus plan um, is to is to also make incentives for homeowners to install things like rooftop photovoltaic panels. So that's going to be a boon to that sector of the economy, but it's also going to help Italy get its carbon footprint down and build up its um, store of clean energy. 
So uh, examples at at all different scales, um, we we actually are creating a database about this, and we're calling it GREAT, which which is an acronym which stands for Green, Resilient, and Equitable Actions Toward Transformation. Um, and if you go to climateinteractive.org, our website, um, uh, you'll you'll find the links to that database called Great, and you can you can check out the examples for different parts of the world and different um, scales from city all the way up to national. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes for those that are listening. And the acronym is wonderful; it's very suitable. Great. Switching gears a little bit. Um, I'm on your web- website right now, and I'm looking at your guiding principles. Can you share a few of those with me? Um, yeah, happy to. Um, so we have we have five guiding principles. Um, one of them uh, really starts with our mentor, who was a woman named Danella Meadows. Um, so I mentioned Andrew Jones as the other co-director of Climate Interactive. Um, uh, Drew and I were both students of Danella Meadows. She was a professor at Dartmouth College where we were undergraduates. Um, and she was one of the co-leaders of still, I think, one of the most important environmental studies ever uh, that was written up in a book called The Limits to Growth in 1972. And it was it was a study that looked at, um, which at what at that point in the late 60s, early 70s was still way off in the future, um, was what would happen when the human uh, ecological footprint crossed the carrying capacity of the earth? And that was a study that said that that um, you can't grow forever on a finite planet is, is one of the first grapplings with that idea. So Danella Meadows' work used this same methodology that I told you Climate Interactive uses, system dynamics, computer simulation. Um, and, and so we have in some ways, um, I guess, carried on that tradition of using computer simulations to help people grapple with both very local and very global social, political, economic, ecological, um, complex systems. So, so that's part of our, our guiding principle. The second one is the, the method that we use. So that we use system dynamics, computer simulation, um, to help uh, ourselves and then uh, the people that we work with understand we have, we uh, we often talk about finding leverage. So where are the places where small actions can lead to big results? One of the goals of system dynamics simulation modeling is to help people understand that. Um, a third guiding principle uh, is wherever possible um, to center justice and equity in our work. Um, we talk sometimes about a carbon-centric framing being a way of looking at climate change that focuses very narrowly on um, greenhouse gas emissions. And clearly that's a huge part of the issue. Um, it's part of what our computer simulations um, model and track the dynamics of. But at the end of the day, um, sustainability problems uh, don't hit everyone equally. Um, we know that uh, people with less access to power are the ones that first feel the impacts of climate change, first breathe the polluted air from the fossil fuel industry, um, and so on. And so um, uh, our, our work is committed to helping people see the equity implications of different climate choices and identify the ones um, that are positive for the climate and positive for equity. 
um, as well. And, and clearly that's a core idea to what we were talking about in terms of multi-solving. And it's a core idea in that, in our great database as well. I really think it is too. Um, you know, I think I read on your website, another word for multi-solving is also a win-win mindset. Yeah, very much. And, um, you know, that's an idea that, that people are always excited for and always looking for. What, what we found as we study really successful multi-solving efforts around the world um, is that, that it's, it's actually not enough just to know the potential that we could solve multiple problems at the same time. Um, to actually make that happen requires a commitment to a different way of acting. Um, it requires a commitment to, for instance, a more collaborative way of working. Um, it requires a commitment usually to, to um, sort of step outside of one's narrow expertise. So if we go back to that example I was telling you about cycling being a, a win both for health and for the climate. Um, someone who's a, who's uh, really just focused on tons of CO2, you know, might not know the potential health benefits without, say, a project teammate who comes from a public health background who can, who can say, well, you could get, um, you know, emissions reduced by more efficient cars or by cycling but I'm here to tell you from the health perspective that cycling is going to give you much more of a, of a health benefit than just a more efficient set of vehicles. So um, one thing that fascinates us about multi-solving is uh, that it, it does ask people to think about their work and uh, their connection to other um, disciplines and other sectors in somewhat of a different way. Now, I think you said you've studied examples of multi-solving around the world. Can you give an example of a specific one that you thought really worked well? Yeah, we've done, um, we've done a lot of this. Uh, we've, we've been really fortunate. We got our first start or, uh, on this idea of bright spots for multi-solving when um, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, so a foundation focused on health, um, told us that they would be really interested in a global scan of examples of successful projects that incorporated um, both health and climate change. And so we um, had the really great opportunity to look across the whole world um, at multiple scales and multiple sectors. And we ended up picking um, 10 examples out of everything that we uh, discovered and um, writing those up in more detail as case studies. And you you can also find those um, on our website. Uh and one thing that was really interesting to us um, was that across these examples, there was just such variety. So maybe I'll just tell you like two or three, partly to try to, to illustrate um, the variety. So one was a project from New Zealand where doctors are able to refer patients for home energy tune-ups. Um, and some of the, the support and funding for that work comes out of um, health budgets, at least it did at the time that we were studying it. Um, and, and so that was a project. One interesting thing about it was that it, it was initially started um, in response to the economic downturn around 2008. And it was meant to help the construction sector um, get, uh, get sort of um, reinvigorated. But as folks started to look at the outcomes um, on the people who lived in the homes that were insulated, they, or and got new boilers and new windows, 
they started to see actually um, improved health outcomes. And now there's there are projects actually around the world. There's a boilers on prescription program in the UK that's gotten a lot of um, good attention. Uh, and, and this New Zealand project did a really good job of showing the savings in terms of reduced hospitalizations, reduced um, uh, medicine costs for the people uh, living in the homes that were just made healthier and more efficient. So that's one example of multi-solving. Um, another one came from Japan where um, factories started uh, planting what they call green curtains, which are basically these vegetative walls on the, the south-facing uh, sides of buildings meant to help keep them cool. So that reduces the cooling needs, the energy needs of those buildings. So they're going to contribute less to climate change. Um, if you see pictures of these green curtains, they're really beautiful. But the other thing is that they planted edible uh, species on uh, of vines um, growing up on these green curtains. And then they used the food from the vines in the cafeterias um, uh, of the companies or employees could take them home. And so there was a sort of nutrition health um, aspect at the same time. And, and the interesting thing about that project, like the New Zealand one, it, it started as a response to a crisis. In that case, it was after the Fukushima disaster when there was um, an energy crisis in Japan as they turned their nuclear power plants off. Um, they really had to conserve energy. And, and this example of green curtains was a response to that. Um, but it has since our understanding is become quite popular across um, Japan. People have, re have replicated it uh, in many, many places at this point, even with the energy crisis somewhat behind them. And, may, and I'll just give a third example um, from the UK this time, which was a walk to school program. Um, and it also was a response to a crisis. In this case, it was people being alarmed that children were um, not getting the necessary daily physical activity to be healthy. And uh, the, so the initial goal of the program was to make it easier for children to walk to school. Um, and so schools and planners and parents worked together um, to figure out what were the obstacles, the things that, you know, intersections that felt dangerous, for instance, um, and remediating those hazards to make it easier for children to walk to school. What they found was that that reduced traffic congestion um, at drop-off and pickup time, it improved air quality, um, and it also saved money for families who were not having to buy, um, buy petrol and maintain the vehicle um, to get their kids back and forth to school because they were walking. And of course, it had all these benefits um, for the physical and um, social mental health of the children. And it reduced Elizabeth, gas emissions from transportation. Elizabeth, those are all fantastic examples. I have to be honest, my mind is still stuck on the, the physicians and the boilers you know, as I'm as I'm thinking about it, I'm just kind of going through the intake forms that we fill out when we go to the doctor, and something as simple as adding, you know, how old is the home you live in? Is it single story, double story? What kind of heating? Maybe two or three questions. You could just aggregate so much additional data, and then do you know um, broad studies regarding certain health issues based on the kind of properties people live in. So that is really a fantastic. Um, opportunity, I think. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. And I think it, it shows what we've been talking about also that um, to find these win-win solutions does require um, 
you know, parts of our systems that generally don't talk together. Generally, the health system isn't really talking to the buildings and, um, you know, efficiency systems, but, but they could. And there's huge amounts of opportunity there. Thank you so much for that. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and kind of get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. Now, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, living in Cobb Hill and, you know, being part of that neighborhood, I think you said for about 20 years now, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, what drives you to stay at Climate Interactive? What drove you to go there in the first place, especially with your background? Yeah, interesting to reflect upon that. Um, so I told you that the the work at Climate Interactive is, is guided in many ways by the example of my mentor, Danella Meadows, and her work on systems. Um, uh, but actually, I didn't set out to, um, to do this sort of work. I have a, a PhD in neurogenetics from MIT. And so I spent seven years studying um, the behavior of a small soil organism. And I actually loved that research. I loved the organism. I loved the questions. Um, but in my free time while I was a graduate student, I was doing um, volunteer work, both on peace and nuclear disarmament and on environmental sustainability. Um, and so I would, you know, work all day in the research lab and the evenings and weekends. I was also uh, often involved with other citizens um, on, on these issues. And about halfway through my PhD, I, I started to feel the balance tip that um, for whatever reason, I felt myself, you know, alive at this really momentous time um, for human beings on Earth, where we were uh, encountering the the limits of the planet. We were moving over those limits, um, and and yet many of our uh, our governments and our you know corporate leaders at that point, you know, this would have been the late 1990s, weren't really responding to the emergency at the level that that my understanding of the analysis really said we needed to be. Um, and so it was in conversation with Janella Meadows, who at that same time um, was feeling the, the pressure of being a, a, basically a single individual. So she was a college professor and a writer, and she was getting, um, you know, almost daily requests for uh, doing, doing new projects or speaking engagements. And it was just more than she as one person felt she could handle. So she decided to found a research institute, which she called the Sustainability Institute. And she hired um, uh, six young people, and I was one of the six, um, uh, to, to help expand her reach and some of the ideas that she had developed over her career. Um, so I finished my, long story short, I finished my PhD in biology and made the transition to this work on um, systems and systems change and computer simulation. And, uh, you know, that was a big, a big turn in my life. But I have, I guess you could say I've been on that kind of trajectory ever since. And yeah, now it is 20 years or, or a little bit more. You know, I think your reflection or introspection there just goes to show the power of mentors and mentorship. Yeah, I reflect on that. Um, a lot, uh, the ways that my life ha has been changed because of Danella Meadows' example. So, so definitely my career, 
but also um, since we started our conversation talking about Cobb Hill, um, there's a connection to Donella Meadows there as well, because she was really the founding visionary behind this community as well. Um, she, she had, uh, for, I guess, 20 years herself, um, lived on a, a farm that was in New Hampshire, um, near Dartmouth College, which is in New Hampshire, that was organized kind of as a cooperative house. She had housemates, um, but it was, it was limited, you know, just by the size of the property. And she really felt that some of the global challenges that her work had, had shown as far back as 1972, um, some of those global challenges were really asking people to experiment at the local community individual level. Um, and, and so her idea was a research institute, the Sustainability Institute, and a community that, uh, that she would live in. And um, some, of, some of the early staff of the Sustainability Institute would live in um, so that we could have this interplay between how we lived and how we worked. She actually called the Sustainability Institute a think-do tank. And that really embodied um, uh, part of her vision was, you know, top-level, very rigorous analysis but then also learning, uh, learning by doing. She sounds like an amazing woman and a woman that was way ahead of her time. The idea of a think and do tank is lovely because, you know, so many times we get caught up in the thinking and not the action part of it. So really appreciate you sharing that. So Elizabeth, what would you say are some of the major lessons that you say you learned on your journey? Yeah, that's a good question to reflect about. Um. Well, we've been talking in this whole conversation about complex systems. Um, you know, the fact that we build computer simulations to help people understand complex systems, um, the way that multi-solving solutions ask us to get different parts of systems to work together in new ways. Um, so I think one of the things that I would name um, emerging for me across all this work is um, you know, that complex systems can't be controlled. Um, there's not, as much as we might like to have a top-down master plan, um, there's complexity in, you know, in the climate, in the ocean, in the atmosphere. Um, and then there's complexity in our human systems. And so that means that much more of what we're doing um, and Danella Meadows used to talk about dancing with systems as opposed to controlling them. Um, we're trying to be wise. We're trying to find points of intervention, points of leverage. Um, we're trying to look for ways where positive change feeds upon itself. Um, you know, so where one person teaches two people and those two people teach four. And before you know it, you have a movement. Um, you know, we're, we're in, uh, you know, and it's not an exaggeration to say we're in a climate crisis, we're in an equity crisis, and now we're in the middle of a pandemic as we talk together. Um, and and each of those is, is its own complex system. And we're looking for these points of connection or points of leverage that can can shift systems. So it's pretty humbling, um, that perspective. You, you start to see the limits uh, of any one individual, but it's also really empowering in the sense that complex systems surprise us and it really matters what each of us do because you don't know which seeds are going to snowball. Um, and, and 
which ones might not, but that's why it's really important that every single person um, plant their seeds wherever they find themselves. So staying with the dancing with systems, magic wand, you know, what does climate interactive look like in five years? We have some, we have some visions that guide us. Um, one thing that we talked about was En-ROADS. So remember, that's the model that, or the simulation that lets people ask questions about different climate policies. Um, and as a small organization, one thing that's clear to us is that uh, for En-ROADS to really have its full impact on the world is going to require many more people than just our team. Um, and so we've begun uh, training people who um, we call En-ROADS Climate Ambassadors. And we have um, uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 of them, I think, right now. I, I don't know the exact number. Um, and that's just since January when En-ROADS was released in December at the UN Climate Conference in Madrid. So since its release, um, a few hundred people have been trained um, they, they do that by, uh, participating in seven, um, or eight hour long webinars where they, they learn the, the science behind the simulation, how to use it to facilitate. Um, and then they do some practice on their own and get certified basically. Um, and these are people, um, from all around the world, speaking different languages, having access in different spheres, some of them in business, some of them in government, some of them are citizen leaders. Um, and our vision is that uh, around 7,700 people will become En-ROADS climate ambassadors, which is um, not an accidental number, but um, one out of every million people on earth. Um, and we think that's a number that uh, of people actively using this state-of-the-art computer simulation about climate change to educate their fellow citizens, to advocate um, in government, to encourage in um, the corporate corporate sphere uh, for, for actions that will address climate change in ways that produce these other uh, benefits we've been talking about in health and equity and so on. Um, so that's the main thing I picture uh, is that we um, we have we have found um, you know the people who want to change the world using this approach. So, does an ambassador have to have any previous qualifications? Um, no, uh, they they basically have to be a learner, you know, which we consider ourselves to be at Climate Interactive. Um, it's. Uh, I don't want to minimize it. You know, um, it's a complicated tool and I'm really impressed by the dedication that people put into uh, understanding how it works. You know, it's attending these webinars, um, attending uh, question and answer session, using, we have a, um, you know, online forum and different kinds of support to help people. And then like so much in life, you know, really what, um, build someone's skill is practicing. Um, and, and that usually is in the form of some sort of conversation. It might be, you know, one-on-one -on -one with a coworker. It might be um, yeah, a Zoom session for a few hundred people. Uh, someday it will be rooms of people again when we're past the pandemic. Um, and it's, it's practicing, you know, both uh, understanding why you get the results that you get, right? So that if people want to test a carbon price, 
um, you know, how does that influence the different parts of the system uh, is something you have to think through in advance. Um, and, and, and then the other side of it is um, how to encourage people's curiosity, how to encourage people to think big and imagine what might be possible. So there's, there's uh, some of it is climate science. Some of it is um, uh, facilitation and learning how to um, help. I guess the word I want to say is hold people um, uh, through their, their confrontation of some of the realities of how um, short time is and how, uh, massive the the level of action and change that's needed is so so people who step up to be Enroads climate ambassadors they're stepping up to uh, learn something about a technical tool but they're also stepping up to be you know companions to people who are grappling with um, really challenging and really exciting new ideas. So for you audience out there, I'm going to guess that you're learners because you're listening. I'm going to put a separate link in the show notes for the ambassador program. Please step up and join Elizabeth on her climate journey with Climate Interactive. I would really appreciate that. So Elizabeth, I'd like to end the show with this question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Well, since we're talking about learning in the context of En-ROADS, um, let's just expand that. Um, Certainly in the context of multi-solving, we've been talking over and over again in the show about um, the kinds of solutions that can't be found from within one discipline or one neighborhood or one group of people. Um, and we're talking about a climate challenge to which there is not a single uh, predetermined roadmap, but that we need to dance with these complex systems. So the one skill that's required for all of that, as best I can tell, um, is learning. So it means um, trying stuff. Uh, the biggest mistake you can make is to not try anything. Um, and so it means trying stuff. It means uh, being really rigorous and honest about how it went. Um, nothing is a failure, right, if you learn from it. And uh, even better yet, if you tell other people, don't try this because it didn't work, um, because we just don't have time to go down lots of blind alleys. So, so just um, vigorous and continuous learning um, is, as I think, one of the one of the tools that's going to see us through this rocky, rocky period here for human beings on planet Earth. So I have this August Rodin quote on my desk, and it says. Nothing is a waste of time if you learn from your experience. Exactly. I like that. So, Elizabeth, I've so enjoyed speaking to you. I look forward to the continued growth of Climate Interactive. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? No, just uh, thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Yes, me as well. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech 
green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.